welcome to Reflections on Interpretation, talking story with guides and interpreters coming to you from our home on the Big Island of Hawaii. I am Tim Merriman, your host. Today, we're going to be talking to a good friend, Dr. Chris Mayer. Chris is a specialist in educational and communication services for parks and protected areas. He's worked in the National Park Service as an interpretive specialist. He taught environmental interpretation at Colorado State University and the University de Valle in Guatemala. He also served three years as a Peace Corps volunteer in Honduras. And currently, Chris is an associate professor of ecotourism at Ferrum College in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia. He serves on the executive committee of the Center for Protected Area Management in Fort Collins, Colorado. Chris, it's great to see you and hear you. We're on Zoom, so we can actually see each other, despite the fact that this ends up being a podcast. I want to ask you a question. We've I've known you a very long time, and you're younger than I am, and I don't remember exactly where we met first. I think it was Land Between the Lakes, but I'm not certain. What do you think? Hi, Tim. Uh, thanks for having me on. Yeah, it, you are correct. It was at Land Between the Lakes. I was serving as one of the, at the time, they had that wonderful intern and apprentice program at Land Between the Lakes. And I was an intern collecting my data for my master's degree uh, at, from Southern Illinois Carbondale under Dr. John Birdie uh, ab about uh, visitor satisfaction at that uh, interpretive site. And you were working there. What In what capacity were you working? Um, I was the director of research or the manager of research and innovations, which is kind of funny because there were like 40 some research projects uh, going on on the property that supposedly I kept track of. And the innovations part was they wanted me to come up with new things for the place to, to get into business with. And in reality, they were starting to downsize land between the lakes at the TVA head office. And so we literally, just as we were getting going, they were starting to tell us, you're probably not going to last very long. <laughs> so, so it goes. I think they, they, well, they had the research. They probably needed more innovation then. Huh? I guess so. so. <laughs> but I am, I, I'm grateful to Land Between the Lakes, and I, and it was an interesting place to work because, uh, who, who knew, uh, 170,000 acre inland peninsula, and then I was working at a place interpreting the. The between the rivers region in the antebellum years so 1850 and they had a living history uh farm there where they were doing third person interpretation interpreting from a at that time a 20th century perspective about what they were doing back in that region in 1850 and uh, it was eye-opening to me because I grew up on the southwest side of Chicago and so uh, tobacco farms and almost any farms were were a little bit foreign to me but uh, it was a great experience so I do I remember I do remember you had a small office and I remember having a conversation with you and to be to be honest my first impression was this guy's kind of stiff i don't know about him man he's <laughs> was i don't know what what it was but i remember you were you, we were talking and you're like hmm and i was like well he seems all right but hmm. but anyway uh you never know with friends how 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 they'll evolve well the thing that's that was difficult about that is tva tennessee valley authority had 21,000 employees a very high percentage of them had engineering degrees or PhDs. They wore a necktie to work almost every day. And when you put a necktie around your neck, it actually stifles the creativity in your brain, in my opinion. Now, I don't know whether that's true or not, but for me, it stiffened me up really well. So I remember you. I remember you wearing a tie at that time. Yeah. And uh, so, yeah. And I was coming off of uh, my previous uh, incarnation as a as a beeper salesman or a pager salesman for Ameritech. Paper, oh, my goodness. Ameritech Electronics in Chicago, which I did right after my undergrad. And uh, I used to be uh, wearing that same necktie uh which i used to call it a rope i'd say in the middle of august with 100 percent humidity and wearing a, a tie and asking myself for whom am i wearing this rope around my neck and why why and i it just seemed mad to me at the time so how, so, how did you get out of that and into interpretation 
Oh, that's a good question. Uh, a great friend of mine who I had gone to elementary school and high school with, his name is Jeff Killily. And Jeff uh, was, I got him a job at Ameritech and he didn't do so well as a beeper salesman. And he had visited a national park and saw a ranger with the smoky hat and the whole uniform and said, I want that guy's job. And so he went to Southern Illinois University and, and studied forestry. And one day it wasn't, I think it was uh, July or August, I was in my cubicle in my office at 111 North Canal and in Chicago. And I called him up and to see how he was doing and how he was making out down in, at Southern. So maybe it was early fall. And he sounded all decompressed and mellow, like, hey, man, how you doing? And my, him and his wife were loving it. And I, I was like, what, 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 what are you talking about? He's like, yeah, it's great. And this was the day. And he said, have you heard about interpretation? And I said, no, what are you talking about? He goes, you can use your communication skills to help protect and promote nature I said get out of here I said yeah it's a whole thing and he goes Dr. John Birdie my professor he's a big advocate of that and so I immediately said give me his number and that's where my sales skills came in because I didn't have many sales skills by the way but I wasn't afraid to call people so I called him up and spoke to him and he uh, was kind and offered me an assistantship. And I, that was the beginning of it. it. I remember the day that I heard about interpretation. And up to that point, I had been preparing to go to law school. I was taking the LSAT, the uh, law school aptitude test and uh, thought I was going to be a great prosecutor or something in the city of Chicago. And I'm glad because um, although I, I, I don't have anything against attorneys. I think that it would have uh, changed me in a way that uh, I, I like, uh, let's say I like the path I took. You may or may not know that my dad sold lawnmowers and his dream was that Merriman and dis distributors would become Merriman and Son distributors and that I would uh, go get a business degree from a local college, come back and sell lawnmowers. And I had worked for him in the lawnmower shop since I was 13 years old. And I hated lawnmowers. The, the worst thing was to have to go talk to a hardware store owner about our lawnmowers. He loved them, but he'd grown up working on the railroad, uh, working as a mechanic, uh, doing things with his hands. And for him, small engines and lawnmowers were a great new innovation and he loved them. And I get that, but he was disappointed when I said, I want to be a biologist. Uh, did your family think you were going to be a park sky, an interpreter? Uh... No, my mother still doesn't know what I do. Uh, it, you know, that's the, the inscrutable nature of the name interpretation. It's, it yes, does it have, yeah, uh, it has that somewhat of a vague uh, connotation that it, that it must uh, project in people's minds. Um, no, my parents, I'm first generation college. My parents were pretty happy that I was uh, going to go away. They say, well, where are you going? What are you doing? And they said, okay, they didn't, they didn't, uh, they didn't really throw, have any, have any hard questions about that. And the good thing about it is when I, I was about 25, when I went and got my master's, I also uh, rounded up a bunch of my ne'er-do-well friends who were, who were working as UPS drivers or working at the local electronics store or, or bumming around doing heating and air conditioning in, in California. And I said, come on guys, let's go, let's get this done. And, um, all, eventually uh all three of them uh finished college so uh so jeff jeff is the one who started this out i got my master's eventual phd and and my other friends ended up uh completing their their college degrees as well so that was that was a big piece of this for me that it really transformed uh, a whole group of my friends and their wives and and now their children so it's great i was also first generation to go to college. My dad had a seventh grade education. My mother graduated 16 years old, salutatorian of the county, but her parents back in the 1920s didn't believe a girl should go to college. So they sent their two sons. One of them quit and became a pipe fitter at a Shell Oil. 
And the other one went on and earned a master's degree and became a principal of a school. But it just made the point for me early on that uh, my brother, who also had a bachelor's and master's, we were treading ground that our family had not been used to walking on. We were headed into more academic circles. And uh, at, as you know, it's humbling when you finish your degrees, especially a PhD, and no one in your family sends you a card or says congratulations. In no. fact, they ask, what is that exactly? You're not, I mean, you're not a medical doctor or anything, are you? <laughs> going, no, yeah. Not a, as, not our, as our friend Paul Caputo says, you're, you're not a doctor who actually helps people. And, <laughs> <laughs> right. I like that. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. That, but education, I, I, I still believe today it's it transformative and it transforms the lives of individuals and their families for generations. So that and, uh, you know, we see people that don't have access to education, even though they're smarter than you and I. So they're they're but they're they're not uh, they don't have access to credit like other countries. I'm talking about a lot of places. They don't have access to just our student loan program or or have any support. So they their their dream stops right there. And where I was able to borrow money <laughs> and go to school. Sure, sure. And I did. And I paid it off, by the way. Congratulations. I mean, uh, <laughs> well, I, I was in my uh, I, was, I was I was a little long in the tooth when I paid it off, but I got it done. <laughs> Well, you're much younger than I am. And uh, when I was in college, I had a teacher scholarship because I wanted to be a biology teacher and it paid all my tuition. If I'd have had to pay my tuition, it was sometimes $60, $80 a quarter. <laughs> I, I can't imagine what it is at Southern Illinois University these days, but it was very inexpensive. And I was paid a dollar. 15 an hour as a student worker and literally I could support my own way through school on that humble amount of money working 20 hours a week. Um, uh, how, mu how much how much did your dad pay you back in the day? What was your lowest wage you ever received? 50 cents an hour. 50 cents. Oh my gosh, that's well, great. He had, he had skilled mechanics that were working for a dollar, dollar and a quarter an hour. Yeah. But keep in mind, Coca-Cola was a nickel. A gallon of gas was 22 cents. But hamburgers, <laughs> we used to have two places in town that sold seven hamburgers for a dollar. Wow. And that wasn't White Castles. No, it was just regular hamburger joints. <laughs> and oh, by the way, as high school students, we very often went over and each had seven hamburgers. Wow. <laughs> That's great. Something I would never want to attempt again. <laughs> um, you and I ran into each other at Denver International Airport many years later, and you were coming to CSU to school, right? Uh, yes, I well, actually, I was on an exploratory journey. Um, mm -hmm. To back off a little bit, right after that master's, I was uh, trying to find my way, and what I did, I, I was trying to figure out how to get a job. And I was in Cook County, Illinois, that's Chicago's county. And so I volunteered for the Cook County Forest Preserve District at what some of your listeners might know of as the Little Red Schoolhouse, which was oh, yeah. a, a nature center that was even uh, featured in Freeman Tilton's book, Interpreting Our Heritage. There was a photo of it in in one of the earlier editions. And um, anyway, uh, they had all these uh, fish tanks and uh, they had snakes and they had frogs and everything. And I volunteered uh, every Friday when they were closed to clean the clean the fish tanks and to clean the nature center. And through that, I was able to see a post for a job at the Will County Forest Preserve District and at the Will County, and that's Joliet, Illinois. And uh, I, through that, I was a public information naturalist. And I met some great people, Steve Alt, but one who was a, a special friend was, his name was Bruce Hodgden, just passed away a couple of years ago. Um, he was a, he was a great, um, of public information naturalist. He was our press liaison. And anyway, uh, I did that for three years and I had always thought about getting a PhD. And I think that came from 
when I was a boy, my father, who was a construction worker on the south south side of Chicago, he he and his buddies used to go to Notre Dame games on Saturdays. And uh, though although none of them ever attended Notre Dame, they loved Notre Dame. And so my father would take me to Notre Dame games occasionally when it was my turn. And I'll never forget the beauty and the emotion of being on a college campus in the fall and seeing the Golden Dome and seeing all the all the spirit of that place. And I always thought that that college campuses are a microcosm of what society could be. There's order. Everybody's everybody's got a purpose and everybody's trying to help people to get to a higher higher uh, realm and I, I just, somehow that planted a seed so I decided after three years to start thinking about where to get a PhD and I asked everybody where would you go and at the time Ohio State and everybody mentioned uh, uh, University of Idaho Mo uh, Moscow with Dr. Sam Hamm but uh, I went out to Colorado and visited Boulder and then I visited uh, what you said CSU but it's Colorado State University and I knew it was home to the National Association for Interpretation and so I did visit CSU I think I had just finished my trip I was on the back on that on the back end of it or something and uh, I saw you in the airport and you had been uh, waiting for somebody there to to arrive and I I again my sales skills uh played in and I walked up and stuck out my hand and said, Dr. Merriman, my name is Chris Mayer. I just want to let you know that I'm, I'm going to be coming to CSU and I, and I'd love to work with you and, 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 uh, and, uh, National Association for Interpretation and, and you were quite amenable. And you did actually end up working for us. Yes, I did. You, you uh, saw something in me. I was a student worker, not this, not the best one. Um, I remember one incident where I was doing the labels on bulk, bulk mail at the time and sticking labels on it and saying, well, geez, a monkey could do this. It's the easiest thing in the world. And so they turned in the sack to the air, to the, to the post office and they did a quick audit to see if the labels were correctly put on there. Uh, so, and they rejected the entire sack of mail. And so uh, one of our colleagues, uh, Heather Manier said to me, yeah, a smart monkey could do it. And so <laughs> she, she, she put me in my place. But yes, I did. And then you hired me before we had uh, certification programs to be part of what at that time was the Western Regional Interpretive Skills Training Conference on campus at Colorado State University. And I was the training coordinator. And you saw something in me to to give me a chance to do that. And that was one of my first uh, special, big special events, uh, being the leader of it. And so that was really impactful for me. One of the things that goes with that experience and every experience I've ever had is I hire attitude when I can. I, I saw that in you. I I saw that you, you wanted to do well. You wanted to work in areas that uh, improved your skills. And to me, that was critical. And RIST, as we used to call it, the, the Western Regional Interpretive Skills Training uh, was a great little local training for a number of years. And the cool thing about the job in NAI was I met a lot of people that were trying to get into the field. Well, as I recall, you were also working for Park Service when you were in Fort Collins, working on a doctorate at times, yes? Uh, yes, I was. I'm trying to think about it. Um, when Mike exactly Watley? that, pardon me? With Mike Watley? Oh yeah, uh, Mike Watley. Yes, Mike Watley was great. Uh, I did. I had the opportunity while I was working, uh, trying to get get my coursework done and trying to write my dissertation, which uh, was a, was a daunting uh, task for me. Uh, was uh, he gave me an opportunity to work with them, and and they had a Washington level office there uh, that that uh, conducted had some of the leading parks still today has some of the leading park science uh, science divisions like water night sky um, natural sounds endangered species etc and they needed an and Mike and I were part of an interpretive branch that helped to identify and promote the significances of the discoveries and the work of those scientists so that was an awesome job I did that I did that for uh 
probably a couple years at least, two or maybe three years, but I met some great people and uh, really learned a lot about the inner workings of the National Park Service through that job. Along with that, I recall you kind of went through some challenging times in the doctoral program where you needed a change and you ended up going to Peace Corps. How did that all play out and what, what value did it have to your PhD? Definitely changed my life. Uh, the Peace Corps, uh, Kennedy's kids, you know, what a, I think uh, you just mentioned the two things that I, that I'm, I'm proudest of America for is the National Park Service and our Peace Corps. And uh, when I got to uh, Colorado State University, uh, I just started meeting people who I'd, uh, who I'd never encountered before, uh, people who either were going into or had returned from Peace Corps. And they were really fired up about their career paths in conservation. And I was a little bit intimidated by them. And I, but, and so I kind of set that aside. And when I'd finished my coursework and was struggling uh, to try to figure out, oh my gosh, what am I going to do for my doctorate? How am I going to get this done? That's if I, you have to remember, I came then asked you and you yeah, said, I, 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 I said, I'm, I'm really, I'm underwater. I got, I need some help and I, I don't know what to do. And you said, well, I don't want to tell you. And I said, that, now that was classic. I said, now you got to tell me. And you told me I would join Peace Corps. Do you remember why you told me that? Absolutely. I knew so many people in my career to that point who I thought were more centered than I was. They knew who they were and what they wanted to be. And the Peace Corps did that for them. And it's a humbling experience to go live in a different culture. I had lived in Spain when I was 22 and in graduate school for a summer and learned some Spanish. And I was really aware that it's, you're very uncomfortable when you live outside your culture. And your first reaction is to flee, to run away. And I think that the next reaction after that is to go, I'm really learning something unique here that's more than just the language and being in a new place. It's about seeing the world differently. And as I listened to you, I thought that's kind of what, if I was in your shoes and I had been in your shoes in a doctoral program that was not going very well. And uh, I thought that's what I would do. I, you weren't in any kind of encumbrance that kept you from doing it. And I knew Dr. George Wallace. And George, as you know well, had been in the Peace Corps and had many friends in Latin America and was working with them. And I thought, uh, George will probably cooperate if he does that. And what did you learn? What happened? Well, first of all, that your conversation was like a clarion call. I, I rode from your office straight to campus to the Peace Corps office and uh, and got the application. And, and at that time, it was a cumbersome process. You had to write all these essays and things like that. And it took many people weeks and weeks to get it completed. I completed it that weekend and sent it in. And um, and uh, and then um, I received uh, an invitation to serve, and it was to Honduras. And I didn't—I'd heard of Honduras, but I didn't know anything about it. And I was not sure that I would want to be able to—that uh, I should go. I was very nervous. I had never done anything that um, that that brave before, as to leave my own country and uh, go to some place, uh, go and uh, live a live a couple of years and and try to and I, I didn't even know Spanish so I was very nervous and uh, speaking of Dr. George Wallace Dr. George Wallace has, um, did some pioneering work on his principles of true ecotourism and and he had been in the Marine Corps during the Vietnam War and then uh, decided to get out of that uh, because he wasn't really he didn't really think that was his fight and so but he said he was still a patriot so him and his wife nancy joined the peace corps and served in panama and so george wallace was uh, t a towering figure at these um at that time the 
the Department of Natural Resources, Recreation and Tourism. And he wasn't even my uh, advisor. So I had told him that I was thinking of going into Peace Corps and would you be, and he had to commit to being my advisor. But I, uh, but I confessed to them that I wasn't sure that I should go. And George in his, in his deep voice said, Chris, have you read widely? And I said, I like to think that I have, George. And then he said, then you know that interesting lives have always taken dramatic turns. So what do you do with that? You know, so that that's that was a beautiful thing to say, because I said, well, if I want to live an interesting life, I've, I can't be afraid of taking dramatic turns. So there's only a few conversations that that like are crystal clear in your mind over the years. And that one was another one of them. And so, um, yep, I got on the airplane <laughs> and uh, I went to Honduras and I served for uh, two years and as an uh, as a let's see agroforestry and environmental education volunteer in the south of Honduras in in a little place called Tierra Blanca in in Namasigüe Choloteca and yeah and I had asked for the full treatment I wanted no electricity and no running water and be, beware of what you ask for <laughs> they gave it to you <laughs> They gave it to me. They gave it to me. And this was, there was no internet and there were no cell phones. So I was there and the great, some of the, some of the impressions that I can just recall right away is um, unless you live in a place like that, where there's no electricity, you'll, you'll never really understand what night sky is and to see the the canopy of stars and and to realize that you're on this that you're a part of a solar system and wow that was striking and then of course i met amazing people in the in the little village that i live were uh, hard-working and earnest people who were endeavoring to have a dignified and prosperous life and uh and you one thing i can say is i learned was the word in spanish is la lucha and the lucha is the struggle. And then you'd ask people, how are you? And they'd say, todavía en la lucha, I'm still in the struggle. And it wasn't said in a whiny way. It meant that, you know what, life is hard, and uh, but I'm still fighting. And that's what I saw in a, in a, a lot of the people from Honduras. And uh, we did some great projects with uh, agroforestry, not too many. I mean, I what was I going to teach a campesino, uh, a farmer about, about planting or about about growing trees that they didn't already know. What I tried to do is bring resources to them. Um, if, if I could find any kind of anything that I could do, if it were tools or money or ideas, I would try. But really, I just tried to uh, not mess it up because <laughs> I was the first volunteer in my site and I didn't want to leave uh, a, a bad uh, site for the next volunteer. So. I really loved that, but for two years, I was learning Spanish, and I don't think I was very, uh, real, to be honest, as effective as I could have been, and the people were really nice and kind, and, but, um, you know, there wasn't a lot of interpretive work to do there, uh, and so, yeah, I was about to go on, to, in, in my, uh, and then I was about to leave when I met another very influential person. His name is Jim Barbarak, and Jim Barbarak um, is just retiring from Colorado State University's Center for Protected Area Management as their co-director, but he was, he had been a Peace Corps uh, volunteer in Honduras in, um, in the 70s or 80s, and he uh, was there doing a consultancy at the Copan, the Copan Mayan ruins, which is an archaeological park, which has vestiges of the great Mayan civilization of that region. And he, and he was uh, writing a, an updated management plan and they needed somebody who had social science skills to do an extensive marketing study. And I had just had very rigorous training in social science and marketing through uh, my my time at Land Between the Lakes and from being in the doctoral program at CSU. So uh, he talked me into extending a third year to 
live in the little town of Copan Ruinas, which is a, uh, a an idyllic tourist destination and the ruins themselves are a UNESCO World Heritage Site and uh, there there I was able to uh, really shine as a Peace Corps volunteer with the help of all the people around me was to collect uh, I did a year-long marketing study and then I was able to collect the data for my dissertation and I was able to um, pester them until they uh, let me do some interpretation and they weren't going to let me do any interpretation in the main group of ruins or anything like that but the the ruin the park was surrounded by a a, a forest which hadn't been there in the time when the maya when the maya thrived there but uh they said well okay you can you, you can do something in the forest and i said well great i'll i'll create an interpretive trail and so we were able to uh, build with the help of a, a great artist from from uh, Holland. Her name is Karen Steen. She did the, the paintings, and we worked with uh, archaeologists like Ricardo Agurcia and and the um, the Honduran Institute of Anthropology and History. And together, we were able to make the Yaxche Nature Trail, which interpreted how the Maya used nature for inspiration and survival, and added and. It was the, it, an absolutely fantastic opportunity for me. And uh, just shout out, uh, I didn't have a lot of instruction. So I used what, like a lot of interpreters did, I used Sam Ham's original book, um, uh, what was it called? Environmental Interpretation, a, a guide for people with, with uh, big ideas and small budgets. And there was just enough information there to get me started. And that was the first interpretive trail I ever built. and. That I could say was the biggest lesson for me, one of the biggest lessons, because I've gone on to build interpretive trails, luckily, and with not by myself, always in collaboration, because it's a collab interpretation, it's a collaborative art. But I've been able to build interpretive trails in Guatemala and in um, in Honduras and in Brazil and in Panama. And um, I can't think, I think I've done others, <laughs> but uh, so I learned that. And I was on my way back to the U.S. at that point, Tim, when uh, to go and finish my PhD and then go teach interpretation at a university. And I decided that if you're going to be a professor, you need something to profess and that you need to be able to, to speak from your knowledge, not from a book. And so... I also had seen at Copan that these wonderful interpretive sites or, or archaeological sites and natural parks didn't didn't speak for themselves. And as you know, that interpreters are the voice of the resource. And and uh, so I decided that I was going to devote some time to trying to help out with developing interpretation in Central America, where um, that had given me my start. So. In 2006, I returned to Central America and got a contract working in Guatemala and uh, with the Ministry of Culture and Sports. They gave me my first chance and I was charged with developing interpretive trails. And so in Guatemala, I was able to develop two, two interpretive trails, but work with a, a lot of community-based tourism. And so I, I spent six years working on community-based tourism development in Guatemala. And, uh, and the lessons I learned through Peace Corps and from, from before was just how to collaborate, how to lead. And my leadership philosophy was always to have a vision for a project. And it, when you have a clear vision of a project that has heart, then you share that vision and then you invite everyone to contribute to that vision and whether the the contribution is small or large whether someone corrects the text or or helps you to um, transport materials they they are part of the energy that it gets added into that trail and the more people you get involved in one of these interpretive projects the more owners the project has and that contributes to the sustainability of it so um and then when you finally cut the ribbon 
you stand back, get out of the way and give credit to everybody else who helped you along the way. So, um, yeah. And so I got to give a shout out to one person I met in Guatemala. His name is Rene Dionisio, but now he goes by the name of Tutsu Bantan. And he is a Tutsu Hilmayan uh, artist, bioconstructor. And he helped me by being um, so self-taught, um, brave that he was able to paint and create anything he wanted uh, on the canvas. But also we built a trail in, in this place called Shui Rashamalo uh, near the shores of, of above uh, Lake Atitlan. Maybe your listeners who have gone to Guatemala know the beauty of that lake. But he was able, he said, we're not going to build this out of wood. We're going to build it out of bamboo. And so he hand carved. We didn't use any power tools. We hand carved and built these wonderful kiosks that, that were in the shape of like an egg because the, just because of nature. And, uh, you know, and he was uh, inspirational to me. And, and he's gone on to, uh, to, to inspire his own people uh, around Lake Atitlan, but also a lot of the Mayan communities. He's become somewhat of a hero because, you know, there's uh, in Mayan, um, in Mayan culture, there's the Nawales, which are, they're, they're not exactly astrological signs. They're actually, they're symbols of, uh, from when you were born and the days each day and has a, a Nawal, like it's like a, a, a spirit of that, like, like a bots or, or Khan and other ones. And they, they embody um, both positive and negative energy. And he, and there's 21 of them, I believe. And he did uh, rap songs in his native Tutsu Hill about every single one of those wow. Nawales and uh, has transformed himself into more of a spiritual artist in a way he's still doing hip-hop and stuff but and now he does work um trying to use hip-hop and and uh, dance and art to help empower a lot of the young young children that live in that region who had often been marginalized so long that was a long speech on my part but boy that that was a big piece of my life so i lived in guatemala for six years before uh deciding to come home for a little bit i even worked for the peace corps in guatemala and that then i became a technical trainer of community-based tourism and i met some lifelong friends and i helped us to learn how to be a better teacher through that and through training and and the and the methods of teaching of peace corps and so uh that was awesome because then you were able to like a multiplier effect to get other people to help create interpretive trails and to help uh, tell the stories that of of people whose stories would not have been told and to help promote some community-based tourism so that was a really great job and i can tell just what i remember when you would come back and visit from Central America, I watched you when you left to go to Honduras, this frustrated doctoral student, and I'd been one of those. I knew what just what that felt like. And I watched this guy come back who was very centered, couldn't exactly pin down exactly what you were going to do the rest of your life. You were kind of searching for what's going to be the right thing next. But I was really aware that you knew who you were and you knew what you wanted to do and that you valued those friends, those relationships and communities in Guatemala and Honduras, and that it was life changing. The other thing that was life changing, Tim, was when I studied interpretation at Southern Illinois, I didn't feel qualified to call myself an interpreter. And eventually, when I was working for the Will County Forest Preserve, Steve Alt said, you're an interpreter. And uh, it was only through doing programs that you gain that confidence. And I can now say I am an interpreter. And I'm so proud to be part of that uh, that that cohort or that tribe of interpreters, because interpreters are the some of the most creative and loving and passionate people on the planet who are doing the yeoman's work of of helping to raise awareness about um conservation issues and 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 so they they just do such great work i love i love that i'm i think i'm very very proud to be able to say i'm an interpreter i want to change the subject slightly and ask 
you're teaching at Ferrum College and ecotourism has been a major focus of your re more recent years. Is that a fair statement? It sure is. Um, uh, after after um, I came back, I, I, I moved I moved back to I, then I went to Mexico for a year, lived in Querétaro, Mexico, and I was the training director of uh, of uh, environmental education for a year. And while I was there, I saw I was I was getting a little long in the tooth and I I hadn't saved a dime towards retirement. And I was thinking, boy, I better. And, and I was like, if I'm ever going to use this Ph.D., I better get on it. And I saw a job uh, announcement, I don't know where, for uh, uh, a, a recreation leadership and ecotourism professor at Ferrum College in Franklin County, Virginia, the moonshine capital of the world. Oh, yeah. And I didn't know anything about that. And but I, you know, in channeling George Wallace, I wanted an interesting life. So I, I was willing to take a another dramatic turn and I I applied for the job and they flew me in from Mexico and I and the, my first impression of Ferrum that that is nestled in the Blue Ridge in the in in wonderful Appalachia is is wow I can't believe how clean the air is here and that was my first not my first impression and the people were amazingly welcoming and at that time, uh, recreation leadership, my, my, co my colleague Dan Caston started a minor in ecotourism. And uh, I was able to, through, through some guidance and inspiration, to turn uh, my program into a major in ecotourism at Ferrum College. So it's, and I've done the research, and maybe one of your listeners will correct me, but um, it, there are ecotourism majors in other countries, but in my research indicates that we are the first and only in the United States. There are, there's, there's hospitality and tourism, there's nature tourism, there's, there's sustainable tourism, there's community tourism, but not ecotourism, which I don't understand why not, but I'm proud now. So, so yeah, my students, um, um, so what I try to do is impart the theory and the skills. Like you say, you know, it's the confidence that's more important than the information. You can get the information uh, in your phone, but the confidence. So one thing we strive to do is to uh, give students uh, learning experiences, experiential education. An example of that is we've done a series of one credit activity courses uh and let me let me just rattle off a couple of them one of them is nature guiding one of them is trail design and maintenance one of them is fly fishing one of them is hunting and tracking uh, one of them is called wild blue ridge where we have a master naturalist interpreting the entire region and, and the natural history of the place so that you're just not seeing a, a green blob of trees you understand the biodiversity and how those the how those uh those mountains were formed and what's happening that what are the challenges and then i started a one credit class that i just taught yesterday or, or actually led i didn't teach it it's called a ferrum green team and this is a a class that that promotes environmental activism and uh, because I think that the, and you might share this view Tim the the young people today and uh, most people today they're beleaguered by uh, negative news about the environment and they don't uh, you know it's always climate change and biodiversity loss and and I believe that they're starting to get um, you know, disaster fatigue and starting to believe uh, to develop a level of learned helplessness where they can't they can't do anything. So I devised this idea and and it was a student who told me to turn I was going to start a campus group. She said, turn it into a class. And it's brilliant. Emma Brubaker, shout out. And uh, so I did uh, I created this class and the and the goal of it is to is to act, to do things. So if you're going to do a river cleanup or something, but also to influence and to use social media and other means and to try to influence the college to become a greener, more sustainable college. And then- What are the goals of the green team? Well, the goals of the green team are threefold. One of them is to act, to do action, okay. like 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 river cleanups and stuff like that. The other one is to uh, communicate, and that is through social media, and not to share 
the bad news, like, oh, this isn't going wrong or that going wrong, but let's celebrate what's going right, what we're doing that's 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 actually right. And then the third one is to influence and trying to influence oh, the behaviors great. at the college to turn it into a greener, more sustainable school. And that's in the dorms. And that's also in the classroom. Maybe and they can get their teachers to quit printing so much or whatever it is we can. But but what the, the bigger goal is, is to is to empower the students to believe that an organized group of individuals can make a difference. That's great. Takes me back to my days in Pueblo, Colorado, because when I arrived there in 1980 to run a nature center that was a year old, I looked at the banks of the Arkansas River, a beautiful trout stream river, and there were car bodies, there were refrigerators, there were tires. And once a year, we would hold a clean up the rivers day and get contractors to bring their trucks and their front end loaders. And we would get Girl Scouts, Boy Scouts, youth groups to walk the river and pick things up. And for about five years, we were hauling 60 to 100 cubic yards of big things out of the river a year. By seven or eight years later, it was literally picking up cigarette butts, tab tops off of uh, Coke cans. We had transformed 17 miles of river corridor and uh, something beautiful and clean. And we had started a trail rangers program for senior volunteers who would ride their bikes on the river trails. And they helped us keep it clean. So we had literally changed the ethics of the community. And it really started very simply with a one day a year event. So kudos to what Tim, you did there. Tim, what, you, did Tanaka, what did Tanaka Shosa say? You tell me, I remember the quote, but. The care of rivers is not a, a matter of rivers. It's a matter of the human heart. That's exactly right. It's what do we care about? What do we believe? Tanaka Shosa, there's actually, he was a peasant who actually was thrown into jail at one point because he went to the emperor of japan and complained about uh, copper pollution of the river near him because there was a copper mine and so they put him in prison and his family brought him food because they were afraid he would be poisoned when he got out he continued to do his work in his community there's now a tanaka shoji university so uh, wow. we remember people who care enough and the John Muirs, the Enos Mills of the world. And that's uh, important. Uh, you Tim, even wrote, you wrote a case study for us in our book, Put the Heart Back in Your Community, about your work in Guatemala. Yeah, yeah, it was a great experience. Um, you, you have to be able to communicate. Uh, I, I, when I, I, I think about it, Tim, you think about I think about every scientist and I don't, I can't name many famous scientists, but let's name a few Neil deGrasse Tyson and, yeah. and John Muir and, and uh, Rachel Carson. Jacques Cousteau. Jacques Cousteau. And they were, they, they may have been, they may have labored doing amazing work their whole life and no one would ever know them, but being a, being a communicator. So if, if you have any students that are listening, uh, always work on your communication skills and especially your writing skills right now and just keep it up uh, because the only you have to you have to have a voice and now with social media and and the outlets that we have you, you have more of a voice than than we ever had access to back in the day and i think of aldo leopold's book uh, sand county almanac which uh, continues to inspire people we teach the Certified Interpretive Guide course via Zoom as a virtual course. And uh, each of the last two years, we've had three of the interns from the uh, Aldo Leopold Institute in Baraboo, Wisconsin, take the CIG course. And uh, they inspire me, these young people who are so committed to uh, doing great things in helping people understand the world and have a better ethic. Uh, how do you see ecotourism and your international work? Because aren't you still involved in Latin America and Brazil? And I am. Uh, ecotourism and interpretation all the time. Part of, uh, according to the, the, the International Ecotourism Society, ecotourism has three main 
pillars, you know, one of them is that it contributes to conservation directly, economically, oftentimes. And the other one is that it's participatory, that the, the people who live in and around the places that we want to visit have a say in the scope and scale of the of the ecotourism, of the of the tourism activities that occur there and receive direct benefits from that as well. And the third one is that it's got a component is interpretation. So that's, I decided that in the years I have left, uh, the strategic focus, the best, the best strategic investment we can make to help to conserve uh, the greatest amount of biodiversity we possibly can and to stave off what people are calling the Anthropocene um, man-made extinction event, mass extinction event, is to invest in protected areas. And uh, so I am not a, a, a law enforcement ranger and I'm not a, I'm not the a concessionaire or anything else, I, but I do know about interpretation, about creating those communication plans and and strategies for the visiting public and for local communities. And that's my way of making a contribution. And I'm able to make that through uh, going back to George Wallace. George Wallace, when he was a professor at Colorado State University of Parks and Protected Areas, he was able to establish the Center for Protected Area Management, CPAM. CPAM is guided right now by, a, by an inspirational leader, Ryan Fincham, who was in Peace Corps, uh, Peace Corps Ecuador uh, in the Galapagos Islands at the Charles Darwin Research Center with his wife, Michelle. And so Ryan's work around uh, Latin America and Brazil and all throughout um, has expanded and kept alive George's vision. And so I, my, I, I'm, I've been able, and it's an honor, I'm on the executive committee of, of CPAM helping to try to improve communication about CPAM, but also about, uh, um, I get, I occasionally get opportunities to, to do consultancies, and I've done some some good work in Brazil, where we've done uh, in the Amazon, in near in uh, Jau and Anavianas National Park, and in the Tapajos National Forest, we've done uh, demonstration areas where we've been able to show uh, a place that no visitation. We built an interpretive trail, the Terra Rica Trail, and created you know, uh, an interpretive trail, it becomes an attraction, it becomes a destination. Otherwise, you're in the you people are going to be hesitant to go into the Amazon rainforest hoping not to get lost. A trail gives them a, a one hour loop an experience that's going to keep them safe, but also give them access and an entree into that world. And so using a great local artist, his name is Helton Campos, who lives in Santarém in Brazil, we were able to develop a really cool trail. We rehabilitated uh, a, a, a tourism center, like a visitor center in Alter de Chau, and then worked with, and Ryan has worked with now generations of, of, uh, of, of staff with the ECMBO, the city. And it's the Chico Mendes Institute for the, for the conservation of biodiversity. And um, he, He's gotten through National Association for Interpretation, host training, and then uh, guide training and interpretive training, and then train the trainers. So now we have those same um, first generation uh, ECMBO employees are now planning, making interpretive plans for the entire system in Brazil, and then training people in interpretation. So it's really taken root there. That's been a, that was a great one. And then just as an aside, um, one of my ecotourism students at Ferrum College, her name is Audrey Ramsey. When she graduated, she ended up um, going on to Colorado State to get her, her master's degree, but got to work at the Center for Protected Area Management. And she was going to go to Galapagos during the 2020, and we know what happened then. Uh, there was a big shutdown. And afterwards, she was able to go back and fulfill her her first, what she was going to do for her, for her master's research, which is to train 
uh, park rangers at the Galapagos National Park um, about interpretive techniques to help protect two of the most popular uh, sites where a lot of the local communities go to. And so when she got there and was able to get that work established, I was able to go and aid her in in training the park rangers on a short for a short time and so i really felt that was a a, a high moment and where where one of my students is now leading and now she's the training coordinator for the center for protected area management doing amazing work she's going to be one of the conservation leaders of 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 this generation that's great you know we've been um chatting for almost an hour before I leave the conversation for the day, I want to ask you this. You and I both grew up in Illinois. Mm -hmm. I literally, from age eight or nine until I was 16, I lived by getting on my bicycle and going somewhere every day. I'm always encouraging young people who have a passion for their profession to have some balance in what they do in their lives. I go running every day and picking up litter. It's just what I do. I keep, keeps me in better health and I feel like I'm contributing to the visual uh, beauty of the community. You're involved with bicycles somehow. What do you do? I, I like what you said is that you have to keep a balance because, um, you know, we all learned a lot of deep lessons during 2020, didn't we, about, about staying connected to one another. So, you know, I, I definitely love to have contact with my friends who I met um, across the many years. So I try to maintain those strong relationships. I try and I try to always, always remember that uh, nature isn't the place we visit. We are nature. And so but to be outside as often as possible. And growing up in Illinois, we had wonderful Schwinn bicycles. And later on, when I was uh, I would when I came home from Peace Corps, I wanted a bicycle, but I wanted a, a an old bike to this lady's house, and and I bought a a Schwinn Suburban, which is a, they made millions of them, but but she said you want to see a really old bike, and she showed me her brother's Schwinn Tiger, which was the deluxe version three speed, and I bought it for ninety dollars, and I still have it. It's in my mother's basement in Chicago, and so um, I don't have a classic cruiser bike problem I have a storage problem but luckily I have and so I've got uh, Dennis Ryan's got a bike stash my friend Kevin Riley's got a bike stash my mom's got one and I even have a, a 1940 Colson in my office at Ferrum uh, a fat tire bike that I ride around campus and I love riding my 80 year old bike I don't know they just have more soul and so I do uh, it, it's hard to find the raw material for me to make uh to to put them together i don't i don't like to like paint them and i just try to fix them and ride them because just like a guitar you see it on a wall you know tim you know you don't want to you just think man that guitar someone should be playing that guitar and when i see that 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 um u.s steel that that's still strong today and i know that that's when uh, u.s was manufacturing or when i look up a serial number on an old schwinn and i think this was made when john f kennedy was president and it was made in chicago and look at the craftsmanship at the welding you don't beads that were the beautiful beautiful craftsmanship and and that and then they were so elegant and simple and when you think about bicycles there's they say like the answer to many of our environmental problems today were invented uh, over a hundred years ago and the bicycle is one of them and it's one of those many ones that, and and when you ride a bike i call i call bicycles my mood elevation machine when you're on an old cruiser bike uh, as long as you're not going up a hill <laughs> you uh, you are able to do that so so one thing i've done recently i took a taken i think it's like a it's about a 1959 um a firestone super cruiser with a double spur a train light and all this stuff and i got a modern um a Shimano eight speed hub. And I had a, a local bike guy rebuild and turn my 1952 one speed bike into an eight speed bike. So, um, and then when I get a little older, I'll, I'll take those old Schwins and stuff like that. And I'll turn them into e-bikes. Our relationship as friends is very important to me. It's been great to spend time with you again today. 
And of course, uh, once in a great while, I hope we get to actually see each other and uh, chat in the same room and appreciate that we've had, uh, gosh, what, 30 years? Wow. More than 30 yeah. years of acquaintanceship and then friendship. And uh, it's been very valuable in every way. So I wish you well with all you're doing at your school. And uh, I look forward to seeing you someday out on Arlen I because uh, you haven't visited us here yet, have you? No, I haven't. I, I and, and it, it's, it's a shame. I'm going. I promise I'll come to see you soon. And you're absolutely right, Tim. We it's been too long, but uh, you know, um, one thing I've I learned early on is that you know you're gonna have you, you, when you have, make friends and they go everywhere, you have more great places to visit. But you can you carry your friends with you. You you and I have never wavered in our friendship over the years, and uh, I want to before I hang up, I just want to thank you for your friendship and your mentorship. Uh, you know, you, 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 uh, gave me some advice along the way that, that, uh, made a difference. Great. Well, I, I'll use the Hawaiian phrase that we often use with dear friends that we haven't seen in a while. And that's a hui ho till next time. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Thank you, Tim. Take care. I'd like to thank my good friend, Dr. Chris Mayer, for joining us today on Reflections on Interpretation, Talking Story with Guides and Interpreters. I hope you'll join us next week when we talk to the author of Interpretive Planning, Lisa Brochu. And I'd like to thank Mark Stoffel for the use of his wonderful mandolin music on the Cookies and Cream album. I hope you have a wonderful day and join us next week. Aloha. Aloha.